The title of this morning's talk is Dismantling Our Addiction to What Is Not. As you probably can see, this talk is a compliment to yesterday's. Yesterday I praised the awareness of how things really are, or as I called, as I entitled the talk, the unadorned awareness of what is. But in order to see things as they are, we need to first dismantle dismantle our relentless and addictive fabrication of things as they are not. Or if not, dismantle it completely, at least bypass it somehow. How do we do this dismantling or bypassing? We do that by seeing through our fabrications time and time again. Today's talk is meant to contribute to this process. As centerpiece of this talk, I'd like to offer you a visual aid. It's a representation, a model of the strategy we use to avoid confronting reality. It consists of two main elements, and here they are. The main one, perhaps, is this tube, this tunnel, so you can figure out what I'm driving at. And the second one is this figurine, this statuette. He or she is not very clear who it is. And then there is a, oh, the, just for those of you who are listening to the talk without seeing, is um, the figurine, the person is about two inches high, and the pipe is about four inches in diameter, so the, the statue fits in there, and about what, five feet long, uh, uh, totally arbitrary that length. Then there's a pole, which uh, the only purpose of this pole is simply to handle the figurine. It has no symbolism attached to it. Let me see if I can stick it on it. There. See? And so, in the course of ordinary life, this little figure, us, me, whatever, finds its way into the pipe, into the tunnel, to protect him herself from the vicissitudes of ordinary life. 
probably mostly from physical, well, mostly from psychological contingencies, real, but of course physical too. Now, the length of the tunnel indicates the passage of time, and the fact that it's just five feet long is totally arbitrary. It doesn't represent necessarily our whole lifetime. It represents any period in which you know, we start at one end, we gradually go through the tunnel, and then occasionally, cannot tell when, we the whole thing stops working. The our denial of reality hits a snag. And whoops! We seem to find ourselves out there, unprotected. Poor guy. What do we do? Well, you know, we quickly start looking around desperately for another tunnel to get into. <laughs> and there we go. Uh, of course, there's also an option that I will consider later, that is to drop our defenses. I just, whoops, all right, hi, I'm free. <laughs> but, but it's not what we usually choose, you know. Of course, having chosen to live in a tunnel, whoops, we spare no effort to embellish it, make it beautiful. These walls of the tunnels are full of stuff, pictures, whatever. Um, in fact, this is all symbolic of the early life of a guy in India who was called Siddhartha Gautama and who eventually became the Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama spent, in, spent a lot of time, the first 29 years of his life, inside such a tunnel. Assume some of you may know, the decision to get him into a tunnel was not his, was his father's. His father was a king of a small kingdom, the head or whatever, a small kingdom in India. And he wanted to make sure that his son lived up to the expecta his expectations and that he started running this kingdom. And to achieve that, he, to prepare his child to succeed him, he got him to live in, in a collection of different palaces, not just one, several palaces, several tunnels, which um, was surrounded by luxury real luxury, upper-class luxury, great food, music, and, let's not forget, lovely and seductive women. 
he lived there for 29 years, but eventually, nobody knows exactly when, he started getting uncomfortable, you know. This doesn't <laughs> look real, you know. Let me see how the world is like. So he, Siddhartha persuaded his charioteer, char, charioteer, the equivalent of a chauffeur of these times, to take him out of the palace, one of the palaces where he was residing then, and show him the world. What are things like around? When his father found out about this, he immediately ordered to clean up all those areas so that Siddhartha would think that life in the palace was just ordinary life, you know. That it was all like a palace. The world was like a palace. But his father's strategy didn't work. Somehow, during his outing, Siddhartha came across a very old man, a sick man, and even a corpse, which revealed to him the reality of aging, sickness, and death. And as the story goes, he also came across a wandering monk. And that inspired Siddhartha to become a monk himself. And he escaped the palaces, and he eventually became the Buddha. Okay, so you understand the situation. Now that primary function of the first part of this talk is not on how to get out of the tunnels, but of the strategies we use to persuade ourselves to stay confined into those tunnels. So, let's start by looking into the tricks we used to confine ourselves similar to the ones used by Siddhartha's father to confine his son. Basic trick is the same in both cases. To create an enclosure and embellish it to make it most compelling and irresistible. And oh, we do that. Surely we do that. Most often by conf con what is it? distorting the institutions that are actually meant for connection, but we turn them into tools for isolation. An obvious example is marriage. In its most conventional form, we turn it into a secure pipeline within which the couple's life 
tends to become a chronic routine. This goes on until one of the parties says, enough. That's exactly what Raquel did, said to me 34 years ago. More about this later in the talk. Oh, take a circle of, of our friends, you know. This is, it's quite peculiar, I found, that in defining the circle of our friends, what matters most is not who's included, but who's excluded. That is to say, it's mostly about the walls, not the content. Of course, it varies. I'm not saying this is always the case. But it can happen. As I'm not saying this is always, what I said about marriage is always the case of marriage. Of course not. Absolutely not. But it can happen. Or take our career. Our career can also be t turned into a tunnel. I certainly did so with my career as a molecular biologist, which was, you know, my, my working years were devoted to that. It's not that I wasn't interested in what I was investigating, I was interested, but my research became also what we can call my signature tunnel, my identity, my enclosure. That's who I am. A career is also likely to become, a, to be a primary source of income. And in our society, income is a leading measure of success, right? In other words, money becomes an irresistible embellishment of for the walls of our tunnel. Just just one concrete stuff about that. Recently, Raquel and I joined a group of local seniors meant to for facilitating our process of aging. The agenda of a recent meeting included talk included a talk and discussion with a financial advisor. The only concern manifested by those who participated including, of course, the advisor, was how to increase our income and how to protect our legacy. Period. Fair enough. I mean, it's okay to increase our income and protect our legacy. But there was not a word, not a moment of attention about any feeling concerning those issues. 
So we spend the meeting enclosed in a financial tunnel. All that matter wants to increase to decorate the walls with more money. So I'm just offering some illustration of how we we can make up these tunnels. Just just one footnote here. Not all tunnels are built around benefits. In fact, even becoming or even playing the role of becoming a victim can be turned into a tunnel. And what an irresistible tunnel. Irresistible not because it's beautiful, it, it ain't, of course, but because we get hooked on being the victim. There is strange predictability on that which what is called in that which is called masochism a strange sense of security not all of us tend to go that way but it's a it's a possible way to go to create a tunnel so I've just offered a few examples of tunnels. So let me conclude by saying that having chosen to live in a tunnel, we spare no effort to make it irresistible. By embellishing it, or otherwise, as in the victim's tunnel, so that we don't fa fall into the temptation of discovering the real. In Siddhartha's time, that embellishment does, does, was done primarily through physical beauty. Nowadays, it's very often due, done electronically using a variety of smartphone-like devices which become those devices, a cycle of our circle of friends, the vehicle of our career, even the way of investing. It doesn't matter which instrument we use. Our goal continues to be the search for predictability into some such tunnel, the taming of our life. Let me at this point offer a footnote to the narrative I've offered so far. Not all the tunnels we enter are meant to enclose us for good. Just as not all the drinking of alcohol is addictive. You know. It all depends on our disposition and our goal. For instance, for me, right before going to bed, 
I often watch on TV the so-called mystery programs. It's like getting myself into a short little tunnel. <laughs> it has a predictable end, you know. It's just a little break. It's a form of relaxation. It's a tunnel, but no big deal, you know. It's not that I'm recommending to do so if it's not your style, but all I'm saying is that there is no harm provided that you get out of the little tunnel just as easily as you got into it. So, let's get them out of this consideration here. Let's now consider how is it that we get out of our real tunnels. One very effective way to do so is through our practice, through the meditation practice. That's what the practice is meant to do. But you may ask, isn't meditation practice yet another form of tunnel? And the answer is no way. (coughs) Let me explain. It's true that when we practice, we isolate ourselves from the contingencies of daily life. You could consider this whole a tunnel. And if you go to a, take a three-month retreat, the hall of the, wherever you do the three-month retreat, could be a, a pretty significantly long tunnel. But is it really? And the answer is no. True, we isolate ourselves from the contingencies of daily life, but we do so only or primarily to create a passageway from our ordinary tunnel of ordinary life out into the open. We are already embedded there and we may need a a little passageway to get out. So we dig this passageway focusing, as I've discussed many times and in the instructions as well, focusing on some form of experience, like the breath, for instance, that has not been pre-programmed as a way back into our tunnels. It's not a habitual way. It's not a passageway that has been contaminated by our searching for more and more tunnels. And once we are out, even for a moment, of our habitual tunnels, or even a network of habitual tunnels sometimes, that's where you construct, we are invited to join the world for real. That's the invitation. How? 
One way is by practicing choiceless awareness. There is no tunnel there. I described it briefly yesterday, right? There, we are invited to be present with whatever comes to us. Not even focusing our attention in a pre-prime object of attention. But just to receive the naked truth of each moment without attachment, without resistance, and without judging or highlighting or even highlighting preferences. Having gotten a taste of the freedom that comes with being with the real, we are less likely to keep striving to get back into our tunnels. Either within our minds as we sit, or even in the midst of the circumstances of daily life. Let's take a look at the ways in which we pra our practice can help us in the context of daily life. <coughs> Earlier in this talk I reviewed some of the ways in which we enclose ourselves in the course of our daily lives. Now, let's see how we get out. One of the ways of enclosures was marriage. And one obvious way of getting out of this tunnel is divorce. But, but of course, and make clear, I'm not prescribing divorce. Just the fact, and we can do it. <coughs> divorce certainly worked for Raquel, and eventually for me, I must say, when she dropped me, she dropped me, you know, to bring an end to our first 23 years of married life. Of course, for me, initially, it was absolutely devastating. First, I looked around eagerly for another relationship. I tried trying them, of course. Trying another tunnel, you know. No, that was the only reason why I, I went after a series of women. I mean, would any of them provide me with the tunnel I was looking for? It didn't work. It was only after ten years of living, divorced, separated, that having discovered the practice as I did and therefore the way out of tunnel life I became available to connect with her again and so we did connect we became partners unmarried partners for 20 years and as perhaps some of you know Eventually, just uh, 
some month ago, we even married. It was for practical reasons, but very anyway, we were living as if married, but uh, but we managed so far at least not to turn our second marriage into another town. <laughs> the breakup of a relationship of, is, of course, only one of many sources of pain that can afflict us in our course of our lives. And if we wish to live out of our tunnels, we have to be ready. We need to be ready and willing, willing to be with pain, to look at pain in the face whenever it happens to come our way. Sure, it's bound to hurt, physically, emotionally, both. Sure, it may be a good idea to see if the pain can be alleviated. You know, take an aspirin or two, whatever. Oh, something more radical than that. But without indulging in a cover-up of reality. Denial of reality. In the end, what really matters is that by staying out of our tunnels, we allow ourselves to be fully present with pain and also, just as well, just as much, to be fully present with joy. <laughs> Two things go together. With regards to being with joy, I was deeply touched recently by an article by Steve, Stephen Batchelor called The Everyday Sublime. At first I was seemed to glorify the abstract, the sublimity of things. But then I realized that the key word in the title was not the sublime, but the everyday. The extraordinary thing that Steve is talking about in this article, in this excerpt, is not an abstract notion, but it has to do with opening fully to every day, to each moment, to each blade of grass. Take a listen. The experience of the sublime exceeds our capacity for representation. The world is excessive. Every blade of grass, every ray of sun, every falling leaf is excessive. None of these things can be adequately captured in concepts, images, or words. They overreach us, spilling beyond the boundaries of 
thought. The sublimity brings the thinking, calculating mind to stop, leaving one speechless, overwhelmed with either wonder or terror. Yet for the human animal who delights and revels in her place, who craves security, certainty, and consolation. In there, right? The sublime is banished and forgotten. As a result, life is rendered opaque and flat. Each day is reduced to the repetition of familiar actions and events, which are blandly comforting, but devoid of any intensity we, we both yearn for and fear. We crave stimulation. We long for a temporary derangement of the senses. We seek opportunities to lose ourselves in rapture or intoxication. Yet, once we have tasted such ecstasies, we often sink back with a sigh of relief into the dullness of routine. To experience the everyday sublime, one needs to dismantle piece and piece, piece by piece, the perceptual conditioning that insists on seeing oneself and the world as essentially comfortable, permanent, solid, and mine. And so, let's stay out of our habitual tunnels, at least for a while, and open up to the ecstasies of being part of life here and now. Rumi, the Persian poet of the 13th century, puts it all most bluntly. He says, and I read, We must be ignorant of all we've been taught and be instead bewildered. Run for run from what's profitable and comfortable. If you drink those liquors liquors, you'll spill the spring water of your real life. Forget safety. Live where you fear to live. Destroy your reputation. Be notorious. I have tried prudent planning long enough. From now on, I'll live mad. (laughs) To me, he's saying, from now on, I'll stay out of all tunnels. I just pause for a moment. Sit for a moment.
So before you go for your walk, this is a walking period now, it's to be followed by the lunch at noon. Am I correct? Yeah. And sorry, at one. Yes. Right. Um, let me just say a couple of words uh, about eating meditation. Another way of describing a lunch. Just, of course, use that as an opportunity to be with yourself. And the primary attention there needs to go to the process of eating. That is, to the taste and the smell and the sensations as you swallow the food. You know, it's not difficult to follow the food down with this tube called esophagus. It goes from the throat to the stomach. It's possible to sense that and certainly sense the, the contact of food and the taste of the food and at times even the smell of the food. So focus on that and you'll find that you connect with, a, with being alive in a very precious way. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.